This week on WealthTrack, global value investor Matthew McLennan on the financial vulnerabilities exposed by the pandemic crisis. We, we find ourselves in a world that is irrefutably more complex, that there are more possibilities between COVID, between geopolitics, between sovereign debt issues, the potential for emerging market crises on top of all of that. So the world is more complex. Unfortunately, despite the world being more complex, the outlook for returns on financial assets is more disappointing. How to manage through them this week on Consuelo Mac Wealth Track. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, a Leg Mason company, Miller Value Funds, Royce and Associates, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. There are a few moments in one's lifetime when the geopolitical and economic backdrop truly changes. COVID-19 and its aftermath is one of those moments. I call it the pandemic pivot. The combined shocks of a highly contagious and in some cases deadly virus, global economic shutdown, rising populism and global unrest are upending the old world order and introducing new disruptive dynamics yet to be fully realized. In the meantime, each of us has to live our lives, do our work, and plan and invest for the future the best we can. And one of the joys of WealthTrack is the ability to tap the brains of thoughtful and accomplished investors who are able to comprehend and analyze the big picture and successfully apply it to specific investments. Today's guest is one of them. He is Matthew McLennan, a noted global manager, head of the global value team at First Eagle Investment Management, where he oversees approximately $80 billion in assets, including several funds. His flagship First Eagle Global, an overseas fund, which he inherited from legendary value investor Jean-Marie Eveillard in 2008. They carry Morningstar's four and five star ratings respectively, and both funds have silver medalist analyst ratings. Each has outperformed both its index and category since inception. First Eagle is a recent sponsor of WealthTrack, but McLennan has been a WealthTrack guest for years because of his track record and disciplined capital preservation approach. Long before this crisis, McLennan has been talking about emerging geopolitical and financial risk globally. He says the pandemic has exposed a number of vulnerabilities, which we will discuss. But first, I asked him what he is telling clients about the financial impact of the pandemic and its aftermath. What we've shared with clients is the fact that one has to be realistic about what one can actually know uh, in a situation like this. Uh, I was reminded of this uh, reading a, a, an old classic written in 1921 by Frank Knight, uh, which was called Risk, Uncertainty and Profit. And in there, he distinguished between risk, which is easily calculable, like the probability on the roll of a die, uh, versus uncertainty where we don't even know the odds. And the reason I make reference to that old classic book is that this is a novel virus. We don't yet fully understand how it behaves and, and what the odds are and how we should adapt to it. I think, you know, when we look at what's happened here with COVID, uh, on the one hand, uh, we recognize some of the favorable developments that we've bent the curve in some countries uh, and in some cities. Um, on the other hand, we don't fully understand uh, how much of that was driven by lockdowns versus adaptive uh, individual behavior. There's a lot we don't know. And I think one of the 
Um, the things that uh, is a little bit of a risk factor here is that while we've bent the curve in cities like New York, um, when we look at America as a whole today, um, that we've seen growth in cases again. And so uh, we're still somewhat early uh, in the penetration of this virus to the population. Uh, we're probably at least a couple of years until herd immunity. Every time we bend the curve, it slows that path. And we could be possibly a couple of years to a vaccine. And so this is a, um, a new period that we're going to have to learn to live with uh, for some time. The second thing that we're, we're telling clients, um, in addition to sort of accepting the uncertainty, is that the policy response to this hasn't just been an easing. Uh, it's been a step function. Uh, we, we saw um, a massive increase in money supply in the United States. We're not just talking about a lowering of interest rates and some QE. We've seen uh, money supply as proxied by, say, M2, which is checking accounts, savings accounts, money market accounts, grow 17% since early March. Um, this is in the context of growth that's usually 5 or 6% a year, and it's likely to grow at least another 10% uh, in the year ahead. So we've seen a monetary rebasing. And we've seen double-digit fiscal deficits, unlike anything we've seen uh, in the post-war period. And so um, we have, on the one hand, this um, hit to demand that's generational in scale, and we have this policy response, which is also generational in scale. And so we have these two conflicting forces of work that we have to try and think through. So, Matt, let's talk about how you're thinking through it. You can assess risk, but you can't assess the uncertainty. That's what it's all about. So how are you thinking through it uh, as a global investor? Well, sometimes when you have uncertainty like this, you have to uh, helicopter out a little bit from the um, the immediate uh, zone of focus. And, and, and in doing so, one of the things that I find is useful to sometimes see in what ways can the past be prologue? You know, what lessons can we take from history to understand some of the second order ramifications from this long term? And I think one interesting period of comparison here is 1968, uh, which was incidentally um, the period that Jean-Marie uh, came to America in. Uh, Jean-Marie, as, as you know, Evillard. fund for, for, for many, many years. And in 1968, um, we started the year like we did in 2020 with three and a half percent unemployment, very low levels of unemployment. But we had some problems. We had a budget deficit in that environment. We had a big budget deficit this year, even before COVID. 1968 was also a year where we had an influenza pandemic in the United States that killed over 100,000 Americans. And so adjusting for the population, not too dissimilar. It was a year where we were um, starting uh, or getting into the um, a, a deeper sort of uh, proxy battle against communism with the war in Vietnam. It was also the year in which a law and order president was elected, uh, Nixon, uh, and, 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 and obviously all of the complications that came from that long term. And so I think what's interesting when you look back to 1968 and you think about what the longer term repercussions of that time were, and it was a time of great student protests as well, um, one of the things that it ended up doing is it exposed the myth that the U.S. dollar was backed by gold. Uh, in fact, it was only a few years after that that we saw the breakdown of the Bretton Woods Agreement, and we saw a total phase shift in the monetary regime. And so one of the things that we're thinking about as we dimension the future is to what extent the extreme policy response here is going to presage a, a shift in the monetary regime. And, and that's one of the things that we're giving a lot of reflection to right now that I think the market's not particularly focused on. 
And what do you mean by that, a shift in the monetary regime? So uh, if we went back to 1971, we left the Bretton Woods gold exchange standard. Um, and That was huge. Yeah, it was huge. And we went to floating yeah. currencies. Initially, the market treated that with glee because easier money seems like a good thing. But we wound up with stagflation. And uh, if we fast forward to today um, and we think about the policy response uh, that we've seen uh, in, the, in the wake of COVID, we have these massive fiscal deficits. Now, if there's an output gap in the economy, it's going to be difficult for the government to raise taxes um, to restore um, uh, our fiscal finances. And so it, it's quite possible that we're at a very cuspy moment where central banks lose their independence. Uh, in that if we can't really raise taxes meaningfully, perhaps central banks are going to have to repress interest rates for a long period of time. We might even have things like yield curve control like we did after and during World War II. Um, and where central banks might even entertain higher levels of inflation than the historical 2% targets. In fact, Powell has already laid um, the runway for this in the sense that the central bank said we're moving to um, a philosophy of an inflation averaging not targeting. And to the extent that the initial shock here is very deflationary, if we got a period of higher inflation, maybe they'd accept three, four, five percent inflation for a time. And, and it's very easy to get behind the curve when that happens. The second um, thing I'm reflecting on with all of this is that a defining feature of the last five or six years is that we had a strong dollar environment. And obviously for the last generation, with the dollars being the reserve standard. Um, right. Part of the dollar strength has been a bit of a mystery uh, in the sense that we've had large trade deficits here, we've had more inflation and more money supply growth, yet the dollar's been strong. I would argue the reason for that is capital flows. We offered interest rate carry to the rest of the world. We offered a vital mm -hmm. uh, economic backdrop and uh, relative political stability. What if all of those three things are now gone? You know, interest rates are zero. We're not offering the same carry uh, we're not offering the same economic vitality. We're not offering the same political stability. And so if those pillars um, come into question for a sustained period of time, it's possible that the dollar could weaken in line with our trade deficits because we're not attracting enough capital from overseas. And if that were to happen, that would help import inflation um, and could set in train that motion I, I, I said before of the, the Fed accepting higher inflation for a time and potentially lead us down a path that's stagflationary. And it's not just bad for the United States if that were to happen. Um, if the currencies appreciated in the Eurozone uh, in Japan, it would be deflationary for, for them. So we, we could mm -hmm. transition from this low and stable inflation world into a world that bifurcates into stagflation and deflation. And the, 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 the role of the dollar as the um, de facto reserve currency unquestioned could come into question. How negative is a weakening of the dollar? My thinking here uh, is that uh, there, there can be some positive side effects from um, easier policy or an easier currency, but those can often be il illusory uh, and, and um, they can sow the seeds of longer term instability. If we were to enter a period of, of stagflation because we were comfortable with weak currency, with inflation and with monetized fiscal deficits, um, that could be a pretty bad environment for risk assets more broadly. If you think back to the 60, late 60s and early 70s, when we transitioned from a low and stable inflation world to a weaker currency, um, fiscal deficits and higher inflation, 
It was terrible for the markets. Yeah, the multiple on the stock market went from close to 20 times earnings to a single digit multiple. And bond yields went from low single digit yields to high single digit yields. And so it was right. de devastating for financial assets. And, and, and let me make clear that this is not a prediction that we're going to get stagflation or inflation. Right. Um, it's it's a risk that we're worried it's about. It's a risk. We, but that doesn't mean that you have to act on it now, right? It, you know, it, it depends. Um, in which end market you're thinking about. So often when we think about inflation, we, we think about it as measured in the economy. Um, but I, I would argue that we might have already seen some inf inflation in financial assets. Um, you know, it's interesting to me that we're in a world where money supply is growing at a double digit annualized clip, but interest rates are zero. So holding your money in cash, even though it feels safe, is actually virtually guaranteeing you an erosion of your purchasing power long term right because you're getting close to zero percent interest rate um, and the rate of money supply growth is is currently north of ten percent um, and and so um, there's an element of inflation in the money supply that that's already happening secondly if you look at equity markets um, the markets bottomed at a valuation that was 15 times the trailing peak level of earnings for the s p 500 that's the highest valuation bottom we've seen in any recession after 1960, markets have already rebounded to over 20 times uh, trailing peak earnings, which is at the at pretty much at the high end uh, of valuations in the last um, century. The price right. of gold has moved up um, quite a bit this year, um, which is a, another indicator. We haven't seen it in the real economy, just given how depressed demand has been. But financial assets are telling us, and the money supply growth is telling us, and the price of gold is telling us that there's a latent risk there that we ought not ignore. Mm -hmm. Right. So let's talk about what you're doing at First Eagle from an investment point of view. So if, if you had to sort of summarize First Eagle, uh, our, our sense of true north is very clearly centered on the notion that uh, we want to deliver resilient wealth creation for our clients over the long term. And that means a satisfactory real return um, and, and some element of resilience in times of um, market turbulence. Mm -hmm. And so... The way we approach an environment like this is firstly, you know, we think long term, you know, we have a, a decade uh, mindset at First Eagle. And what's important is that, you know, is, is not to try and take a, a bet on which way the market's going to go up, you know, being long, mm -hmm. being short, but to have within your portfolio um, an inherent barbell. Number one, to demand a certain quality of business that, that can endure difficult times and that has um, perhaps the capacity to generate profits through volatile cycles and and um, and monetary growth but uh, but importantly to have different kinds of businesses that will thrive in different countries and in different states of the world um, and and I I'd, I'd say the second thing that's uh, important to understand about our portfolios is that we understand that we need to set sail uh, in, in order to participate and and to preserve wealth long term but in a sailing boat, you have probably 30% of the weight in ballast, and 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 that helps uh, you deal with stormy, inclement weather. And and um, we we are firm believers in having an element of ballast in our portfolios, and we express that through our willingness to hold cash and 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 gold. Um, but in this environment, our ballast has skewed a little bit more towards gold because you can't print it. Talk about the resilient companies, and you know I'm thinking the uncertainty as. You know, you mentioned about the pandemic. I mean, what company can possibly have prepared 
for that. So, so no company is perfect, and 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 no no company um, has the capacity to deal with every state of the world, and that's why we are inherent believers in diversification. We have over a hundred investments in our portfolio, but there are certain trace elements that matter, and I would say that the two kinds of companies that we think. Um, would help you survive periods of um, market or economic volatility would be companies that control um, scarce assets. And and by that, I mean companies that uh, have prime market share positions uh, in niche markets so that they have the ability to have an element of pricing power, fixed cost leverage, better margins, better free cash flow generation, so that they can withstand the, um, the ups and downs of different uh, environments. The other kind of company are, are, are those kinds of companies that control prime real assets. Um, think of a, um, you know, apartments or office buildings that are incredibly well located, or think of very long duration assets like um, Timberlands or um, you know, uh, a mine that has um, two decades of life left to it, and it's at the low end uh, of the cost curve globally. These kinds of businesses will have cycles. Um, but because of their good positioning, generate better margins, better free cash flow. And in both kinds of businesses, whether you have a dominant market share in a niche market or whether you have prime real assets, you can't protect against every up and down. But you can, mm-hmm. on average, generate better cash flows um, and you can pace with real economic activity over time. Give us an example of a company that typifies uh, what you look for in a in in that kind of niche dominance. So so let me give you a few examples just to bring it to life. Right. Um, you know, because if you look at our portfolio, uh, it's replete with these kinds of businesses. And so, it may be a business in technology, for example, uh, like an Oracle that has you know a very dominant position in relational databases and and generates a lot of their revenue from recurring revenue. So it's almost a corporate staple. Or it might be a consumer-facing business like a Colgate-Palmolive that has uh, roughly 40% global market share uh, in in, uh, toothpaste. Um, And it it can be more eclectic businesses in in the portfolio um, that, that dominate smaller niches of the world economy, you know, like the Shimano's in bicycle brakes and gears or, um, mm-hmm. you know, Hoshizaki in, in uh, you know, commercial ice making machines for restaurants. And so there's a whole range of companies in our portfolio that have strong niche market position. It could be in um, robotics, companies like Fanuc with over 60% market share and computerized numerical controllers and uh, for, for robots. Uh, or it could be... Uh, uh, a sort of a below the radar business like a CH Robinson that doesn't have a monopoly like position, but it's dominant uh, in in truck freight broking. Uh, it's an asset like business. They don't own the trucks. They own the platform uh, that enables people to to place uh, uh, um, to route uh, trucking orders on a less than truckload or full truckload basis. And so our portfolio is full of these kinds of um, niche businesses that uh, really have strong position in small slices of the world economy. And if you think about it, if, if you have 100 plus of these kinds of investments alongside the other sort of scarce real assets that I was talking about before, what you've tried to do is out of a universe of several thousand securities, craft a more resilient core, uh, something that has the ability um, to do well in different states of the world and to sort of grind out sound real returns over time. And address the ballast issues. You don't hold cash as an asset, right? You 
basically view it as you know dry powder and that's it's if you're not finding opportunities to invest in is that correct you're 100 percent correct one thing i will say if you look at the ballast piece of our portfolio which has included both cash as uh, deferred purchasing power and gold as a potential hedge um, if you look at historically the majority of our ballast was in cash and the minority was in gold as a potential hedge um, one of the ways that we've adapted to this crisis is that has inverted. Our cash levels came down to a, a high single digit level um, in, in, our, in our global fund, so just below 10%. And um, meanwhile, with the appreciation of gold, it went up from being closer to 10% to being a mid-teens uh, percentage of the portfolio. And we're entirely comfortable with that. Um, you know, at the end of the day, cash is short-term stable, but as you lengthen your time horizon, um, given the increased rate of money supply growth, um, it's being eroded in real value. So you, you really only should keep enough cash that you could realistically deploy uh, in a year or two of market uncertainty. Beyond that, if you want a potential hedge or you want longer term dry powder for a truly bad state of the world, we think gold um, is superior to cash because even though gold is volatile in the short term, it can't be printed. And, and if, you, if you go back to the early 1970s, where we started this conversation, um, and since the breakdown of the Bretton Woods Agreement, money supply has grown 6% annualized in the US. The return on T-bills has been close to 5%, so you've been diluted in T-bills. But gold has had a compound right. return of about 8%. And it's often done best in really bad states of the world. It was a wonderful investment to hold during stagflation uh, in the 1970s and early 80s. You're, you just said that gold is going to play a more important role in some respect as ballast than cash. So do you envision that role continuing? So uh, I think in the simplest terms, we, we find ourselves in a world that is irrefutably more complex. That there are more possibilities between COVID, between geopolitics, between sovereign um, debt issues, uh, and, and you know, the potential for emerging market crises on top of all of that. So the world is more complex. Um, and unfortunately, despite the world being more complex, the outlook for returns on financial assets is more disappointing. Equity valuations are reasonably full. Um, the yield on bonds is, is generationally low. And so you know, when we look at that very simple backdrop, more risk, less return, I guess we've, we've made the judgment that we want a little bit more of a potential hedge in our portfolios. And so um, I think there's an argument to be made that were we to have troubled times ahead, the gold could clear at meaningfully higher prices. And we would want that potential hedge um, to be the, then be able to take from gold to invest into the kinds of businesses we like at very advantageous terms. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, what do you think everyone should own some of? So I think an asset that most people still don't own uh, that we've discussed a lot today uh, is gold. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's seen as an anachronism. Um, it's perhaps seen as something that's already worked. Um, but I think the value of gold is something that, that spans, frankly, centuries and millennia. Um, you know, the fact that uh, we couldn't stand the discipline of money based on gold is an intuitive and simple way to understand why gold has outperformed uh, our currency, even adjusting for short term interest rates. So why not own something that's endured, um, that's had better long term real returns, 
that's naturally defensive because of its chemical inertness as a potential part of a diversified portfolio. Yet to convince someone to own it is always a difficult task. And I, and I, I think one of the reasons people find it a challenge is it doesn't offer a yield. But what sovereign paper offers yield today? And bullion. You're talking actually about bullion, even though I know you own gold mining stocks as well. That's correct. As you know, and, and I view it as a potential hedge. And if you're thinking in multi-generational terms, like you know, who you're going to give to in, in future generations and who those generations may give to if you have generation skipping trusts, um, what can you be virtually certain will have value generations from today? Businesses come and go. Sovereign regimes come and go. But what can you be certain in for the long term? Matt McLennan, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us, as always, on WealthTrack. Thank you so much. At the close of every WealthTrack, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point concerns our psychological health, which is as important as our physical health and contributes to our financial well-being. This week's action point is look to Winston Churchill for inspiration. I highly recommend a recent book about the World War II leader and one of my heroes. It is The Splendid and the Vile, a saga of Churchill family and defiance during the Blitz. Through first-hand accounts from the great man himself, as well as family, friends, personal staff, and political and military associates, author Eric Larson captures Churchill's irrepressible spirit, energy, idiosyncratic work habits, discipline, determination, and unflappable leadership under the stress of unimaginable pressures in his first year as British Prime Minister. It was 1940 when Britain stood alone against Nazi Germany's undefeated war machine. I also highly recommend listening to Churchill's wartime speeches. A BBC radio recording titled Never Give In, Winston Churchill's Greatest Speeches, put together and narrated by his grandson and namesake, Winston Churchill, is available online. What better way to rouse our spirits during these challenging times? In this week's exclusive extra feature on WealthTrack.com, we'll discuss the lasting changes the pandemic and its lockdown have made in Matt McLennan's personal and professional life. Don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for watching. Have a splendid weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and a productive one.